Good morning, Lighthouse Community Church. How are you doing today? Good, I hope. It's morning, right? Joy comes in the morning, and we're so excited to be with you this morning. I hope that you're as excited as we are. God is still doing amazing things here at the church. As you can see how well lit I am, God is working on the lighting project, the live stream project, so many other things. And that's why you have to get up every morning and be part of it. We want you guys to be on the journey with us as God is continuing to do something with this great little church in Costa Mesa. So thank you all for joining us this morning. Will you please open with me in a word of prayer as we ask God to come and bless this service this morning. Father God, we thank you for what is another wonderful day. We thank you for the opportunity to see your hand in everything. And we truly do believe what the scripture says, that joy comes in the morning. And it's another morning. It's another opportunity to see how good you are to us. May we have that heart, that attitude of gratitude this morning. May we continue to hear from your word and from those that you've provided to teach and encourage us, Father. Whatever the subject is, whatever the opportunity is to come and be in your presence, Father, we invite your spirit into that. And we pray that today would be just another blessed day at Lighthouse Community Church. Thank you for the opportunity to serve. Please join us at this time in worship as Cheyenne comes up and leads. Never runs out on me. Your love never fails, never gives up. 
recognize just how wonderful and beautiful you are. And so we give you this time. We submit it into your hands. We thank you for the ways that you love us, Jesus. In your holy name, amen. Well, hey, I'm going to invite Ben to join his wife, Cheyenne, down here because we have some fun news that we want to share with you. And while he's heading down, I also want to let you know about what's happening this week. Uh, On Thursday is the National Day of Prayer. And we want to recognize and join with our brothers and sisters around the world who are praying. However, uh, we are, are taking a page this week from the church in Costa Mesa. You remember right before Easter, we spent three weeks of 24-7 prayer, and this, the church in Orange County took note. And so what they've decided is, hey, can we as the church in Orange County, remember, there's only one church, Jesus is the head of all of us, so can we as the church in Orange County band together to pray? And so that's what we're doing. We're turning the National Day of Prayer into Seek Week, and it begins on Monday. And for 24 hours a day, for all five days, Monday through Friday, we are going to be joining with over 100 churches in Orange County to pray for our nation, to pray for our world, to pray for our families and our neighborhoods. And I want to invite you to join us. Uh, Each night, there are going to be uh, prayer times and worship times. It's going to be an evening of prayer, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. The church in Costa Mesa is actually going to be hosting Friday, and I want you to participate. It's all online, and in order to join us, you go to seekweek.org to find out more. But now, the reason we're up here, totally not recognizing socially distancing standards in this very moment, but that will change in just a moment, is because you know our church is about discipleship. We're about raising up the next generation. We are about identifying and just equipping and then uh, sending people into ministry. And that takes place in sending people out, but sometimes it looks like inviting people from within to step up into some roles. And I'm really excited to get to commission both Cheyenne and Ben today into two very, very important roles. Cheyenne has been leading us in worship for the last several weeks. She's been on our worship team for the last couple of years. But today we want to commission her as our worship director. She is going to be leading us in worship. She's going to be overseeing our worship team. She's going to be partnering with Bill because remember, we're about discipleship. Bill has over 25 years of worship experience. He is coming alongside Cheyenne to equip her because we know that she, we we see the talent, the gifting, and we want to keep breathing training and life into her as she continues to lead us. And so we get to commission her But we're also going to be commissioning Ben today because Ben brings another skill set. Ben is that guy behind the computer who's helping the sound work, who's making sure the lights are on, and who is helping us right now figure out how to do live streaming so that we can continue to do it into the future. One of the things I've learned that will not change moving forward is that people will no longer come and check out church predominantly in the flesh at first. They're going to go online and check out church that way. And so if we hope to be able to reach a new generation of people with, our, which, with Lighthouse, we need to continue an online presence. And he's really helped us take those steps into the 21st century. And so he is going to be coming on staff as our very, very part-time director of technology, making sure that all of this stuff works. And we're so grateful for both of them. They are, are just a ridiculously gifted ridiculously um, available and responsible couple. And so right now, if you would extend a hand, we want to pray over these two. And I'm going to keep, I'm not going to touch them, but I'm going to pray over them. Father God, I love Ben and Cheyenne. I am so grateful for the ways that you've brought them to our church. I'm so grateful for the ways that you have gifted each of them 
in their own ways. And right now, we want to commission them to these roles, to this responsibility of helping us. These are your modern Levites, the ones who you have called, gifted, and entrusted with the responsibility of leading your people into worship. We thank you for their availability. We thank you for their willingness to be used by you. We pray, God, that you would surround them with others who will help carry the weight because although they may be entrusted with the weight and the responsibility of leadership, they can't do this by themselves. So I pray, Father, that you would bring others with technical abilities to come alongside Ben who'd be willing to help operate cameras and help operate the the sounds and graphics and all of that other stuff. We thank you for Cheyenne and her singing talent, her leadership talent in that. We pray that you would bring others into our community, that you would raise up others to help lead us into worship as the first worshipers. Because that's really what she is. She is our primary worshiper leading us into worship. Would you be glorified in them? We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Thank you both so much. All right. Romy, come on up. All right. Hi. Okay, so as you probably know by now, we have been in the midst of a series. We, we really took a, a pause from our Acts series in order for us to just begin to sit with all the emotions that this season is stirring up. And there, there's a ton of them. Um, we want to give ourselves permission to feel and then to have a real and a raw conversation. And toward that end, I recognize that although I know a little bit about grief, I know a little bit about sorrow, I'm not an expert in any way, shape, or form. And so I've been surrounding myself with people who have more uh, experience, have more training. And one of those people that I'm really excited to get to introduce you today uh, is Romy Warzibach. Romy's been a part of our church for the last three years, but it's really only been in the last couple of weeks that I've discovered what it is that you do. Um, so Romy, I know that you are a certified bereavement counselor. Is that, that accurate? Right. And so you work for the last 18 years at a, at a funeral home. home. So, so she is working with families who have lost loved ones week after week after week, walking with them. And I know that your heart really is to walk with those who are bereaved. But it's not just that you have almost two decades of experience walking with people who have lost loved ones, but you also have a master's degree in thanatology, which <laughs> up until you told me, I had no idea. I'd never even heard that that was something. I, yeah. And then uh, thanatology, is that like the study of Thanos? Like, do you study Marvel, you know, bad guys or something? Right. So what exactly is thanatology? Thanatology is a study of death and dying. Um, it's an area of psychology. Mm-hmm. And it helps us to understand uh, the social and interpersonal um, ramifications of grief. And I know that your specific heart is to walk with those who have lost their loved ones and really to encourage them to take the space that they need to heal through it. That's right. Um, And so I know that for many of us, we haven't at this point lost a loved one. But we've all lost something. What are Mm. some of the things that we've lost in this season? Mm. Yeah, so I was thinking a lot about this. I know um, personally what I feel like I've lost um, by not being able to go to work, um, sense of identity and purpose and meaningful interactions with others that feels so um, 
important you yeah. know, to, our, to our very being. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people have lost the fundamentals of um, what we need for safety and security. So if you think about what humans need um, physiologically, which is the very foundation of what we need, the very basic needs are um, our shelter, our financial security, uh, food and water. And I was thinking when this all started, there was that run at the grocery store. Yeah. Um, and I think that comes from the fear that we wouldn't have enough, you know, we wouldn't have enough food. So um, that seems to have died, died down. But um, in addition to our very physio physio physiological needs, we are uh, missing our psychological and social needs. Yeah. That interaction with people that we love, um, the touch, um, the dialogue, interfacing, um, the support, mm -hmm. and, um, and then on a higher level, um, you know, validation as to who we are and what's our purpose. So a lot has been lost. Yeah, I remember very vividly the day that my wife, as this all began in the first week, my wife and I were like, oh, this is weird. We can't go to work. We can't do these things. She's trying to navigate how do I meet with clients uh, over the Internet. Uh, but for the most part, it, wasn't, it hadn't really hit us until my wife went to the store because she wanted to make something that night. And we're just so used to being able to go at any point and get anything that we need. She waited in that long line to get into the store, walked in, went to the meat department, and everything was empty. All of the shelves in the meat department were empty, and it was in that moment that there was this sense of, oh my goodness, this is real. Like, this isn't just something I'm hearing about on the news. This has come home to call. Mm -hmm. it, I am touching it right now. Mm -hmm. And then I have sensed, I don't know about you, but I have sensed this deep longing for physical touch. Mm. I miss it. Every time I see somebody from mm -hmm. a distance that I love and I want to reach out and shake their hand, or honestly, quite honestly, I just want to wrap my arms around them, mm. I miss it to the point where this Earth Day rolled around and I was ready to hug trees because I'm just missing touch that much. Um, so we've all lost something. And I would say for a lot of people also, the, the financial security yeah, that we've had yeah. as, as people have lost jobs, as people's Regular incomes have been disrupted. Mm. There's so many mm -hmm. losses. And that, that um, instills the idea that there's more a sense of permanence. Mm. So when we're looking at that financial um, factor, and I really feel for, for those people who have lost their jobs yeah. and don't know how they're going to get it back on track. So let's, let's just, right from the outset, define our term again. Okay. Um, how would you, as somebody who has studied grief, define grief? How, do, how are we to understand it? So um, grief is, like Kathy mentioned, um, a result of losing something that we love, uh, someone that we love, um, or something that's dear to us. Mm -hmm without our willing it to be so, um, it's the pain that we feel. The, the emotions that we're left with, it can be physical or emotional, um, mm -hmm. spiritual pain. And um, it is a process. Mm -hmm. And in my profession, grief um, specifically applies to um, the pain after the death of a loved one. So I, my, my, role, um, my role is to help people where they um, have to reconcile the death of a, a loved one. Mm -hmm. So um, I really appreciated the, the, the kind of analogy that Kathy used last week of a loss is like having something that you care about 
pulled from your hands yeah. Yeah. and the grief is the rope burn that's left behind. And for right, us just right. to disregard that is disingenuous well, and it's not helpful. Yeah, and, and it's actually necessary to have uh, the pain of, of what we've lost is what propels us to come to terms with this new uh, reality. Mm. And because we can't sit in that pain forever. Yeah. So we are kind of um, forced to, to try on new shoes, okay. to experience things and life in a new way. Yeah. So I'd love to lean into grief uh, because this is something that you've studied quite a bit. And my only real experience with grief, mm. at least from a, an academic standpoint, is when I took one class on death and dying at UCI um, and in that class, I think we watched the movie Tuesdays with Maury, and we read a book by Elizabeth Kubler-Ross on the five stages of grief. Right. So that's my understanding of how we yeah. walk through grief. So let's just begin there. Yeah. Let's begin with, because I would imagine a lot of other people, when we think grief, we think the five stages of grief. What are those? Where did they come from? And what are they for? Okay, good question. Um, so Elizabeth Kubler-Ross was a pioneer in our field of thanatology, which is a relatively new field since the 60s. Okay. Um, so she, her research was um, studying the dying patients, okay. and she found a correlation that they have a universal experience of emotions. Mm -hmm. And so she um, presented this model of five stages of grief, and, and a lot of people really embrace that model because um, we haven't talked much about grief and death and dying in our culture. Okay. And so it almost gave so us a common language. So it was a, a, spring, a springboard, pla okay. a platform from which to, to proceed. And um, since then, we've had a lot more um, uh, studies, research, and so on. Um, and present, we've been presented with different models. Okay. Um, so Kubler-Ross, her work was instrumental in mm -hmm. opening up the conversation. Um, but what the problem with the five stages is it has left people feeling like um, it's a, a recipe mm. and a, a, a sort of a, a process that we graduate from one step to the next and then yeah. we're done. Yeah. And so um, grief is really more fluid than that. Mm -hmm. we, we don't have um, stages in, from which we graduate. Sometimes we have progress, but we may um, go back again, sort of regress. Okay. Um, so, uh, there what are those five stages again? Uh, the, well, the five stages, if you really must know, are um, denial, mm -hmm. um, anger. Mm -hmm. Okay, denial, anger, bargaining. Uh huh. No, this, we, we 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 can do something. How, what See, can I do I, to fix I this? I sort of put these out yeah. of my mind so, because so they're I'm not hearing. as relevant as I. Okay, deny. Let me say it. Let me. I can say it. Denial, denial anger, anger, bargaining. bargaining depression okay and ex and acceptance. acceptance and acceptance being the last one of her uh, five stages it's interesting that that is where most current models would start yes. with acceptance okay. and and many many people would say well that seems pretty uh, basic i mean kind yeah. of uh, a given that we yeah. would need to accept it um, but the acceptance um actually is it takes place on a very deep level. It's mm -hmm. not just the physical acceptance that the, the person is not with us any longer. Yeah. Acceptance is also intellectual and intrinsic because we redefine who we are without that person. Okay. So it is, it's a pretty deep. So 
my understanding from what we've had a couple of conversations about this, and one of the things that was really clear to me in one of our conversations when I brought up the five stages, you're like, oh, hold on. I mean, that is, it's misapplied. That yeah. she designed this for people who are facing their own mortality, who have weeks or months to live. Mm-hmm. These are the things that they kind of work through. And it's mm-hmm. not even you know, a step by step by step. And once you work through one step, you don't go back. Even they, it's kind of working through the feelings. Mm -hmm. And one day Mm -hmm. you're angry and the next day you're kind of accepting it. And then then a couple of minutes later, Mm -hmm. you can be angry Mm -hmm. again, or Mm -hmm. you can be in denial again. Mm -hmm. But we can, oh yeah, please. um, And in her defense, um, so she's written other books since then. Mm -hmm. And the, her recent, the most recent that she wrote before she died is called, um, it, the first one was on death and dying. The, the most recent is called On Grief and Grieving. And that one would explain um, in better detail what she intended. Okay. So, that's, that's helpful. Because yeah. I know that for me and so many others, it feels like we've gotten those five stages. Yeah. We pulled them out and said, that works. That gives us a common language. I'm good with that. And so where do I happen to be today? I'm in denial, right? Or uh, right. We're always in denial that we're in denial. Um, until we're forced, until we finally accept it, and then we can accept the fact that we were denying it the whole time. Um, but anger, I, I see that coming up a ton. Mm-hmm. Like with my sons right now, angry that they can't go hang out with mm-hmm. friends. I'm angry that I can't go to my park down the street because it's attached to a school, and so they still haven't opened it up. We, we see a few people down in Huntington Beach who are a little angry that they can't go to the beach. Um, and other things like that. There's just such this messiness in it. Mm-hmm. And it feels like we have pulled that out ascribe that to any time we experience loss and it has shaped the way our western culture approaches grief deals with grief and even has affected the length of time that we allow Mm. ourselves to grieve so what are some ways that you've seen the five stages and almost the misappropriation for people who are living who aren't facing our mortality in an imminent way in what ways does it shape and warp our perception of grief well, again, it, it's not stages. Um, we, uh, first of all, grief is extremely um, personal and unique to the bereave, to the griever. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to separate what we're talking about, the difference between losing a loved one to death and the difference of losing our security and psychological needs and so on being okay. met. There are parallels. Um, we experience some of the same emotions and mm-hmm. feelings and despair. But um, when it, so my, my area of specialty with death, um, I'd like to say that grief is very unique um, and it's um, based on so many factors. The, um, the variables include the personality of the, of the bereaved. Um, what, what is their coping strategies? How, what's their loss history, their life history, mm. the relationship to the deceased and um, uh, what is their support system? So there's a lot <clears throat> that is very unique. And so you're grief, saying that grief the, is not one size fits oh, all. Oh, my goodness, no. Okay. And the intensity or the feelings that are um, experienced are proportionate to the relationship that's lost. Yeah. So if it's a very significant relationship where you're intertwined, that you're going to have a lot more yeah. to cope with. Yeah. Or, or let's just change it to the loss of a job. If you yeah. find your identity... Yeah. in that job, if you find your security in the, the, the height of your bank account, 
those kind of things are going to hurt more than somebody who's got plenty of money in the bank and isn't really being mm, affected absolutely. by this, or somebody who's able to work from home, or, right. you know, right. some of you who have uh, children out of the house are experiencing this radically differently than those of us who have kids in the home. It's, <laughs> it's a whole new ball game right now for, yeah. for Kathy and I as we're trying to navigate this. Yes, yes, so, absolutely. So grief isn't one size fits all. Right. Um, and, and it looks different. I'd love to talk about kind of the timeline because I feel mm-hmm. as if in the West, one of the things that is such a hallmark mm-hmm. of our approach of grief is that we try to compress it into a radically short period of time. It's almost as if, and this is what I see when I am preparing with people for a memorial service um, or as I'm walking through somebody with somebody through something that has really been a body blow to them. They've, had, they've experienced a deep loss is there's almost like this mindset that, yeah, it's okay, you've lost something. Yeah, it hurts, and you can feel that. So you go ahead and work those five stages. You know, you, you show them who's boss. Get through them quickly, but get through them and get on with life. Yeah, people will literally say that. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, sadly. All, so what, why is it that we're in such a hurry to get through our grief mm-hmm. here in the West? Well, we're very uncomfortable. Um, I think... Most of us have not had a lot of conversation about about death mm-hmm. and about grief. It hasn't been modeled for us. Um, we've maybe uh, not experienced it firsthand. Mm-hmm. So it's um, and another another thing is we're a little bit in denial about the fact that we're going to be grieving in our lifetime. And especially here in California, we have a um, a culture that is um, very. Uh, youth-oriented mm-hmm. and um, fast and furious kind of living the fast life. Maybe. YOLO. You only live once. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So, so our, our setting here in Southern California might even be a little more so of mm-hmm. um, death-denying okay. culture. So we're not comfortable with grief. We're not mm-hmm. comfortable with the topic. And when someone else is grieving, we don't know how to help them. Yeah. So we hope that they can just hurry up. And then as we go through grief ourselves, it's so uncomfortable. And you, you've actually, if you've never gone through it, you may feel like it's not going to end, that the intensity is too much to bear. And how, <clears throat> how will I ever have joy again? So um, we, we just really want to get to that point of resolution, yeah. of having, having peace again. And it, it does come. And grief does soften. But it, it takes... Time. And it's not just um, time that, that is helpful, but um, what we do with our time, mm. how we mourn. Okay. I see your microphone has come apart. I just want to make sure that just move it in a little bit. Um, awesome. Thank you. Um, okay. So I noticed this. I, I, I've even experienced this with uh, this, this series. Because initially I was thinking, hey, let's, let's take a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And, then I, and then as the questions kept coming up for me, mm-hmm. I found myself wanting to lean a little bit deeper and deeper into it. I've had people come to me and say, okay, so we've spent two weeks on this whole grief thing. Are we ready oh, to yeah. move on now? <laughs> right? So I, and I'm sure some of you are feeling like, come on, can we get on with it already? And I think that that is just a natural knee-jerk response to a culture yeah. that this is uncomfortable. It is. And I get it, because it's uncomfortable yeah, well. for me, too. Mm-hmm. And yet, I can't think of a single season in my whole life where there has been a national and even mm-hmm. international 
uh, unity in our grief, where there's a touch point where all of us are experiencing this deep-seated sense of loss in, in different ways, but we've all lost something. Mm-hmm. And so what better time for us mm. just to lean into this and go, this yeah. is a very real part right. of life in this broken world than to lean into it now. Mm-hmm. Um, because otherwise, what I find happening more often than not is that when we just try to deal with our grief and move past it, it's almost like looking at it like it's a weed, right? Grief is a weed and it has to be pulled up. So I start plucking the leaves that I see springing up through the soil of my life, but I never get the roots out because those roots are deep and they're, they're intertwined into so many things. So I just keep plucking the tops off. And then what ends up happening is it just keeps springing up in all of these different areas. Mm. And one of the things that has become very clear to me through my conversation with Bill, my conversation with Kathy last week, my conversation Mm. with you so far, um, is that grief is a natural part of life. Mm. We will have loss. It's necessary. We can't get over it. We can't get past it. The only way to get through it is to go through it. And one of the beautiful things for us is the permission that this season is giving us to feel. And another thing that you said a little earlier that really resonates, and I think is really important, I don't want people to miss it, is that we will experience grief differently based upon our loss history. If we've experienced loss in our past and haven't worked through it, that's going to come in and color all of this. And so that's why we're having these conversations. That's why I've asked you to be here today is that for us to grapple. And it's one thing for us to look at the model in the West of the five stages and and talk about some of its inadequacies, but I want Mm -hmm. to give us uh, some hope. How can we do this in a healthy manner? And so what I'd love to do is look at a culture that is more comfortable with, uh, Mm -hmm. with acknowledging and walking through grief, and that would be the Jewish culture. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's what we're going to do is we're going to take a few minutes and we're going to look at how the Jewish culture, who is extremely familiar with grief, they have, they have experienced a lot of loss. They've experienced a lot of upheaval. I mean, you think about just reading through the Bible, how much uh, pain they endured, but then you look at them in the modern era during World War II, where they were literally be rounded up and destroyed, exterminated as a people, they have experienced grief tremendously. And it is, they are culturally comfortable and intentional about how they walk through it. And so what I'd love to do is turn to Job chapter 2. That's where we're going to be kind of uh, basing our, our conversation theologically off of this morning. And as you're turning there, uh, just a little bit of context. Job is one of, if not the first, of the books of the Bible that was actually written down onto paper or papyrus or whatever it was written on. Um, so as one of the earliest, if not the earliest book that was written down, it deals predominantly with grief. And specifically, the subject is this guy named Job, who has tremendous reason to grieve. As we, we read in chapter 1, which we won't look at, but... In, in the first chapter, this poor man loses all of his investments, his cattle, his donkeys, his, his camels, all stolen. And in the same day, a storm knocks the house that his children are in, it knocks the tent down, kills all ten of his children. And shortly thereafter, 
he's physically uh, affected by boils, really, really painful sores all over his body. This man has very, very good reason to grieve. And so as we come to chapter 2 and towards the end of it, we find Job sitting on the ground. He's shaved his head in grief. He's torn his clothes and put on sackcloth. He's sprinkled ashes over his head as a symbolic uh, kind of reference to his deep, deep grief. And now he's sitting in the dust in sackcloth and ashes, which is where we get that term. That idea of sackcloth and ashes is just deep, deep grief. That's where we find him. And then Job's friends show up. Mm-hmm. And what those of us who are familiar with the book of Job uh, probably think automatically that Job's friends mess up big time. And they do. Because the majority of the book of Job is them trying to fix him. What'd you do wrong? How can we get out of this? Right? As if every single thing that happens to us that's negative is directly tied to something we've done. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes we bring grief upon ourselves. But as I think a lot of us can attest to right now, there are things that are outside of our control. The coronavirus... We had no part in it, but it is affecting our lives and it has caused deep loss for us. And so they, and eventually they start trying to fix it, but that's not where they start. And what I want to do this morning is I want to lean into where they start because I think it's really informative to give us a different idea of how we can approach grief. So I'm going to start reading in Job chapter 2, verse 11. Then Job's three friends, Elphaz the Temnite, Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nathamite heard about all the troubles that had come upon Job and they set out from their homes and they met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him and they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and they sprinkled dust on their heads, joining him in his deep grief. Verse 13. And then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Mm. That verse 13 is so interesting to me. Because I always think of the words that they start speaking and trying to fix it, but they don't start there. They start with simply sitting Mm. on the ground with him and joining him in his grief. So take me through what's going on here. Um, so it, it, they naturally knew it's imperative to meet someone who's grieving, to meet them where they're at. And if they're leveled and need, just need us to be there, that's, they knew to do that. Yeah. Um, to, to be comfortable with the despair. Mm. Um, we, we see that, um, if we can be authentic and support someone um, by listening, providing that good listening ear, allowing them to tell the story, mm. um, that uh, is, is in very instrumental in yeah. helping them um, process. Uh-huh. But in this case, Job was not going to speak. Yeah. He needed to be still and allowed that time to just feel that pain that, mm. and despair. Yeah. And they allowed that. So they, they supported him by sitting. So this is a natural part of the Jewish approach to bereavement. I, am I right? Right, right. so the tradition of, of sitting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And seven, it's, it's interesting that it's seven days and seven nights. 
Mm-hmm. So my understanding is that this is an example of sitting Shiva, right. which Shiva is a, a, a Hebrew word that simply means seven. And for seven days and seven nights, somebody who's going through deep grief, the community comes around that person and joins them in their grief. Can you tell mm-hmm. me a little bit about that? Like right. what are some well, of the In the Jewish tradition, um, sitting Shiva means um, following the death of a loved one. They, they, um, the community would allow the family to mourn in whichever way um, they deemed necessary. So if they wanted to be silent in the seven days, uh, they could be silent. If they wanted to talk about the deceased to, to remember, um, they could do so. But folks um, would come to the home and um, pay their respects and possibly just sit. Um, the, ho- the bereaved were not expected to be hostess or host, and they, um, in fact, the people that came to provide support would help um, facilitate that. So they would bring they would meals. They bring food and serve and clean. They would clean it all not up. Expect the, so the bereaved are not expected to do anything. To, and, and they would even, um, the, it's tradition to cover mirrors in the household with a black veil so that they didn't have to see their appearance to not have to take time to worry about such things. So I think there's some people who probably need to reconsider covering their mirrors because they haven't shaved, they haven't (laughs) brushed their teeth, you know. How many times have we taken showers over the course of this time? So that is a natural part of it, is simply to give the bereaved the space to feel whatever it is that they're feeling. One yeah, of the things no that, expectations. One of the things I love that I didn't realize until I started looking deeper into sitting Shiva and the whole bereavement process for uh, Jewish people is that when people come to the house to be their um, companions in grief, they won't even say hi to the person because that kind of almost expects a response. And there is no response expected. That they would walk into the house... Mm-hmm. And they would sit mm-hmm. with the person. Yeah. If the person wants to acknowledge them and say hi, they can. But if that person not who's expected. grieving does not want to, they don't have to. And in fact, we see with Job, he kind of ignores their presence. And these guys don't berate him for that. They just sit with him for seven days mm. and seven nights. Mm-hmm. And I love that idea mm-hmm. of we, the guests who are coming to join you, will care for you in this time. We will almost mm-hmm. be like the cast mm-hmm. on you that allows you to be a broken person. We'll bring you food. We'll serve you the food. We'll clean up the food. We won't demand something of you. And then they'll give that person permission to just be. Mm, And so if they want to talk, the person can talk. And and, and their job isn't to fix. Their job is simply to listen. Oh, Let's just Mm. lean into that for a second. Why is it that it's such a natural tendency of ours to fill the silence why do we do that? And I'm supposed to know why. <laughs> um, I, I believe we're just so uncomfortable mm. with the emotions and we're not um, familiar with the grief. Yeah. So, you know, that's the way we've, our culture, um, with constant input, whether it's the media, television, our phones, we don't have a lot of silence. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do benefit from that stillness, right? Yeah. And it's necessary yeah. to, to have time and space to understand what it is we're feeling and maybe even evaluate why, yeah. especially in our circumstances today, to evaluate why. What is it that we really feel we've lost? 
And what's God trying to tell us? I find it really interesting that for people who are walking through the bereavement process, and particularly in sitting Shiva, they don't entertain, like they don't have entertainment. They wouldn't turn on the television. They wouldn't be going all over, you know, Netflix and all that kind of stuff. It just stays off because mm-hmm. they're giving themselves spe- space to feel. And right. I will confess right. that my first impulse when I'm feeling something is to grab my phone and, and t- to distract myself. Mm-hmm. When the stuff is coming up, I got to yeah. turn on Netflix and I just got to veg out. And there's yeah. a space and a time for that. But I do, I, I would agree with you completely. Yeah. And We're afraid of silence. And the next part after Shiva, uh-huh. sitting Shiva, is um, returning to life again, mm-hmm. um, going, perhaps going back to work, um, doing what we need to do but at the same time there's it's just a given and it's um, known uh, to the self and the community understands that they're not going to be themselves fully themselves they're still grieving um, and that they would limit the distractions so they may not shave and they may not and they may limit entertainment Um, just kind of having the getting through the obligations of our um, and our duties of, mm-hmm. of our lives, but then the reserved energy has to be given to what is important. Okay. It is really interesting to me that my first thought would be in the West. If we were to take a whole week to just sit with our sadness, no distractions, anybody who comes around just lets us be there and doesn't try to fix them. If we were able to do that, I think we'd pat ourselves on the back and go, good job, you've grieved well, you can move on now, you can go back to life. And I think that people would probably almost look at us like if, we, if that wasn't enough, mm. oh, there's something wrong, man. Like, how, wh- why are you feeling mm. so deeply? As if that was enough. But I, one of the things that you're tapping into here is that for Jewish bereavement, mm. that seven days is just the beginning. Right. It's not the end of their, their grief process. Yeah. Can, can, let's just talk a little bit about that. Like in the, in the first month, after the, the, the seven days of Shiva, um, what does that look like? How do they begin to enter back into regular life? What does that first year look like? Mm. So getting back to work and doing the necessary things that we um, would need to do, mm-hmm. limiting distractions okay. and um, still allowing for that um, mm. continued process. It's, yeah, a, it's a process. The waves of grief right. to and come it, and... And then there, at the year anniversary, mm-hmm. there's a tradition of um, unveiling the, the grave marker, the headstone. Mm-hmm. Um, and then years l- down the road, we commemorate. Um, the Jew- Jews and, and Jewish folks would commemorate the life, the memory of the deceased and loved one from years to come. Mm-hmm. So we do pay homage. Yeah. Um, and that's important to remember. One of the things I was really struck by last year when we were in Israel, we went to a Jewish cemetery that overlooks, it's on the Mount of Olives, so it overlooks the city. Um, And on all of these gravestones, there are literally stones. And they're just kind of, and if you've watched the end of Schindler's List, you've seen them do this as well, where they bring a stone and they stick it on top of the grave marker. What is the symbolism of that? Are you familiar with Kind of why they I do, that? do know that they do that yeah. to, um, because the memory, t- storytelling is mm. vital. Okay. And so in marking the, that they were there to um, pay respects, mm-hmm. uh, marking it with a stone just concludes that they remember. Yeah. It's almost for them, because I, I know that there's 
a long history throughout Scripture of God commanding his people to pick up stones and to make stack stones mm. as an altar of remembrance. Yeah. For our culture, we don't really deal with stones. We like flowers. And so that's one of the ways it seems like our culture has mm. used a similar approach. Yeah, that's right. We use flowers, but flowers are much more transitory. They die really quickly, mm. whereas for the Jews... They grab uh, stones which yeah, have a symbolism yeah, yeah. for them and, and sticking it on there is a way of saying, mm. I remember you. And one of the things that's really important about the way that they grieve is they don't try to stuff it all into seven days. They don't try to stuff it all into one month. They don't even try to stuff it into one year. Yeah, it's a lifetime. And, and on anniversaries or even on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement and other things like that, they allow themselves to remember. Um, I think that's something we as a culture have lost. We like to remember our victories. Mm. feel like the things that we make altars of remembrance to are our awards that we've earned. Mm. We don't make altars of remembrance to the wounds that we've collected. Mm -hmm. And one of the most powerful moments for me in my trip to Israel last year was when we went to Vlad Yashem, which is uh, the Holocaust memorial there just outside of Jerusalem. And while I was in there, one of the rooms, the whole thing was really powerful, but in one of the rooms, there was this glass floor, and underneath the glass floor were all of these shoes. And those shoes were the, the cast-offs of those Jews that had been taken into the different uh, you know, concentration camps and ultimately were killed in one of the ovens. And those shoes had been removed from them, piled up, and eventually they made their way to Vlad Yashem, and there's this whole floor full of shoes, and I was standing above it, and I found myself just staring down. You might be able to, Mark, if you can throw a picture up there for us. I was staring down at this floor full of shoes that looked like raisins in the way that they were shriveled and cracked and dry. And I knew that at one point in life, they had been live and they had been full like a grape, full of hope and dreams and aspirations in life. And yet their, their lives had been cut short. And that is, that is reason for deep, deep grief. And as I was sitting there just looking at these shoes, being overwhelmed by sadness for what human beings can do to one another, I, I was interrupted by this big group of soldiers that were coming in. Because one of the ways that the Jews continue to this day to commemorate and remember the grief nationally uh, as a people is they go to this museum and other places of, of remembrance and they sit with the, the sadness of what's mm -hmm. happened. And so the next picture, if you throw it up there, I, I just kind of tried to, to steal this picture so it's a little bit blurry, but it's of the boots of a, a soldier standing over or sitting over this floor full of old cracked boots. And what, what absolutely stood out to me in that was here is a guy whose boots are still full of hopes and dreams and aspirations. He is the hope, the future of Israel, and he's looking down upon their past, and they don't ignore it. They don't pretend it didn't happen. They don't just say, oh, that was a dark chapter. We don't talk about that. Shove it back in the closet, move on. No, they have actually built their national identity in part, not only on remembering the good, but on remembering the hurt. And I wonder if we can learn from them in that, that 
that not just commemorating the positives, the, the weddings and the anniversaries mm. and things like that, but commemorating mm. the death of a loved one or the birthday of somebody who's passed or, you know, even I think of the 9-11 memorial that we have in New York and the importance of having that as a people because that was the last real body blow we took. And having some place that we can go and go, mm. yeah, we experienced this. And you know what? We're still alive. We're still here. We, we haven't been overcome. And, and remember the good that came from that. Mm -hmm. That can help breathe hope into the midst of the angst that I think a lot of us are feeling right now of... I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I've lost a lot of things. Man, my hands burn right now. Mm. I'm monologued for a whole long time. Help me, help me out okay. here. Okay. <laughs> well, we know that in the morning process, morning is the acts that we um, take, the action that we take when we're grieving. And it helps us to um, make sense of the loss. So, one very important aspect is the telling of the story, the telling of what was lost okay. and what uh, the person meant to us mm. and how we can um, proceed in life with them with us. Yeah. So we do memorialize um, and, and we want to remember and pay tribute. It's part of the um, mourning that um, makes meaning and helps us to um, accept and kind of integrate, assimilate yeah. with this, what's happened. Yeah. And so the, uh, it's a lifetime journey. Mm. It, it, it's not just over in a year, mm. um, but we may revisit mm. what we've lost in the future and pay respects to what we've lost. And that's in memory. Can you lean a little bit into a term you just used? And it was one that as I was talking with Kathy this morning, she brought up. And, and it's that word integration. Mm -hmm. Because she was sharing with me that in, in counseling, the whole goal of counseling is to help a person integrate when our tendency is to want to separate. That was a painful experience, mm -hmm. so I'm just going to separate it from myself and shove it over mm -hmm. in a corner and not think mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to focus on the positives. Whereas healing and wholeness means integrating the good and the bad, the tears with the joy. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. talk, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, there's several words that sound very similar. Um, to reconcile, to assimilate, and to integrate. Mm -hmm. They are very similar, um, but the concepts are to just um, find out what this has meant to me. Uh, you, you realize what this experience how profound it is, how it's changing the core of who I am, yeah. and, and coming to peace with it. Um, reconciliation is the ability to, after loss, um, find joy again. So the goal is to, again, engage in life with joy and meaning, purpose, even though we, hang, we still hurt, yeah. but we can find that joy. And so mm -hmm. integrating would be part of that process of making sense of, what it means, uh, why, and okay. who we are now. Okay. So it's a journey. It uh, is. Yeah, it's a journey. And I think that sometimes mm -hmm. our, our knee-jerk response is, let's just jump there. Let's get right. there as quickly as possible. No, there are actions. Let's, yeah. let's go ahead and short-circuit this whole process of having to feel this by finding the silver lining in it so that I don't have to think about the pain that I'm experiencing. Right. 
And in that, I think we do ourselves a disservice because, again, we're just plucking the leaves off of the weed as opposed to recognizing that, no, this is something God wants to use in our life to grow right. spiritual and fruit. We become different people. Yeah. The pain um, pushes us into action. And the action <clears throat> that we take is what changes us. Hmm. So we, we need to change. Yeah. And um, I think it's really important when we're grieving or when we, you know, when we have faced loss to sit with what it is we're really what we really lost and what it has meant and ask us ask God why why was that important to me um, and what do you want me to do with this um, how can I help others with what they've lost a couple of things one of the things you mentioned earlier is that grief is extremely personal it looks different for each of us. And all of us are experiencing our grief in different ways. And yet, one of the things that comes through so clearly, both in the example from Job, as well as the whole Jewish process of sitting Shiva and, and the grief, the bereavement process, is that we can't do it alone or it's best done with others. Mm -hmm. uh, almost as if the people around us, as we are working through our stuff, give us some stability and support, yeah. help uh, act like a cast where they hold us together while we're, we're just falling apart. Why is, why is community so important in times of grief? Hmm. Um, it's very helpful for the bereaved. And I'm talking about death now yes, because that's my area. Um, it's very helpful for the bereaved to have uh, a sounding board. Um, so people listening is instrumental in accepting what has been lost and that's really the first step um, and and in it assessing what that really means mm -hmm. so to verbalize it to have a good listening ear is vital uh, to have someone to listen you know and um, community uh, the support it can be in different ways uh, right now I'm really concerned about how people are getting that support mm -hmm. Because face-to-face -face is so much more um, valuable, right, yeah. than, than on the phone. And, and it's so difficult to do right now. Yeah, yeah. So um, so community helps in, in being the sounding board. Yeah. And just like Job, sitting, sitting with that someone in pain um, gives them the sense of obviously that they're not alone. The tangible, not walking through the despair alone, that somebody yeah. is there and recognizes how bad they must feel. It almost sounds like the greatest gift we can give to somebody who's hurting isn't our perspective, but our presence. Absolutely. That's right, Eric. And rather than telling them what they need to say, oh, you know, no, no, no. God's got a purpose. He, he works all things together for the good of those who love him. And all, all of those true things that end up becoming empty Christian platitudes... Mm. The, the greatest gift we can give them is the space to be, permission mm. to feel, mm -hmm. and a listening ear. Absolutely. If they want to talk. If they want to talk, yeah. One last thing that I know that you've brought up a bunch of times in our conversation is this idea, and, and I'll just throw it out because it's something we've heard a bunch, time heals all wounds. Is that true? Okay. Time helps. Um, 
It's the action. Okay, that's a loaded question. I know. I, I don't love think it. I have time to explain all this, Eric. Ex explain a little bit <laughs> okay. about why time itself isn't enough. Okay, so it um, it's not just time. Time does help soften the intensity of the pain that we may be feeling when we're grieving, um, and over time, those um, those intense feelings um, will um, decrease, like the inter. inter Inter intervals between the intense emotion will lengthen. Mm -hmm. But it's not the time that does, um, does it. It's what we, what we do with that time. So the acts of mourning that we take, um, including um, sometimes it involves crying. Mm -hmm. Some people need to cry it out. Um, doing some creative writing or prayer um, thinking about things in a creative way mm -hmm. and really expressing the pain mm -hmm. is what's necessary. Revisiting and then um, it's not done in just one quick swoop. Yeah. We have to revisit that over and over again until it, you're integrated. Is it okay for me to pass memes on social media? Can I do that? Is that a way that I can work through my grief humor? Oh my goodness. Is that okay? Like, I, I genuinely want to know. Like, is it a healthy way? I find myself in moments feeling bummed. I find myself journaling. But there are also moments where I just want to find levity. I want to find, I found this dude, uh, Wes, who is a white guy that raps Dr. Seuss lyrics to Dr. Dre beats. And I love it. And I find myself just like just trying to show everybody. Um, and my, my kids think I'm totally lame. And I am. But is that okay? for humor to be a part of the grieving process? Yes, it depends. I mean, I can't really answer that in a nutshell. Okay. Yeah. One of the things I have found in working through, uh, going through funerals and stuff, is there is, as you were saying earlier, sharing stories mm -hmm. is really important. And part of that is sometimes we think we need to keep it all serious, but the reality is some of those stories are just laughing about what that person experienced or what, you know, a funny story of something that happened. And that's part of the grief process as well. And I would say, as a pastor, absolutely, positively, humor is a part of this whole process. It's a part. If we simply try to distract ourselves from it, if we use the internet or television or something like that just to constantly numb ourselves out, then it can become a drug that can hinder us from going deep but we need to give ourselves permission to feel. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't always look like crying in pain. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think that that's an important thing that we could miss in this. All right. So last question is I, is I have Cheyenne and um, Josh coming up. Mm. We have a bunch of individuals who are, are experiencing their own loss. For some of our younger mm. um, audience, uh, our millennials, this may be the first real cultural experience of loss and, and, and disruption that they've experienced in their mm -hmm. life. For me, I'm in my 40s. This is only really my second. The 9-11 was the first one. Mm -hmm. um, we are experiencing deep loss. Mm -hmm. What would you want to say to them? Mm. So um, grief, is, grief can be very lonely. And now with our uh, crisis, it, it is even lonelier. So um, we know that sharing our grief um it helps to alleviate that suffering so i just encourage you to talk to those around you 
get on the phone and talk about how you're feeling, identify what it is, lean into it. Um, it's, it there's no shame in feeling bad. So um, it's going to vary from day to day and just allow yourself to feel. Um, maybe ask God why, you know, what is it I'm supposed to learn from this? Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. And would you, would you pray for us? Yes, I will. I'd be happy to. Okay. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about an uncomfortable subject. We, uh, we just want to thank you for being our Father, our, our Provider, our Protector. Thank you for guiding us. Um, and we know that you have asked us to sometimes be still. And in that stillness, we may hear your voice and feel your presence. So, Lord, we just um, ask you to lift up those who are suffering. Let them know that they are not alone. Show us how we can help others. Mm. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Romy, thank you so much for being with mm. us today. You're welcome. All right, we're going to go in, into worship. So go ahead and join us now as we worship together.
I want to thank you so much for joining us today. And if there's one thing that came through loud and clear for me in this is that we're all in this together, but we're all experiencing it differently. Grief isn't one size fits all. And while we will work through our stuff personally, we need one another desperately. So there's a couple of things I want to let you know about. First off, if you're not currently in some sort of midweek community like a life group or we have grief share which is a a group of people who are specifically joining together then I encourage you just email pastor at lighthousecommunity.com and we will get you plugged into one this week secondly as much as this little thing right here can be a distraction in my life it can be a source of noise that I use to distract myself from community from being with my, my feelings and my grief, this can also be a, a really important tool. Because we, I can use this to call for help, to call somebody, just to hear somebody's voice, to remind myself I'm not alone. 
I can also use this if I haven't seen or heard from somebody that I interacted with a lot before this, I can use this to give him a call. So I would encourage you, I challenge you to call at least a couple of people this week. Reach out to them and just say, how are you doing? And then finally, I want to remind you that this week, beginning tomorrow, is Seek Week. We're going to spend the whole week as a community of Christ followers in Orange County, lifting up our community, lifting up our country, lifting up our world. And I want to invite you to join me, join Pastor Jeff, and join countless other Christ followers in our, in our county in praying together. Just go to seekweek.org to sign up. You'll be able to find Lighthouse is one of the churches that is putting this on, so you can join in with us, and I will see you then. Father God, we thank you so much for loving us. We thank you that you made us people who can weather the full range of emotions, and we thank you that you are a God who can handle our feelings, that we don't have to hide them from you. And so now, Father, we just simply say, help yourself to us. Help us to walk through all of the emotions. Would you lead us through this? And would you use even this to glorify yourself and to advance your kingdom purposes? Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. Have a wonderful week.